Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited because Courageous Conversations is back. We weren't able to have it last year because of COVID, but this year it is back with a vengeance. We are so excited for the seven amazing topics we have, Christianity and white supremacy, rediscovering early African Christianity, black religions and the next generation, slavery in the Bible, politics in the pulpit, truth and trauma, patriarchy in the church. We are squeezing a lot of courageous conversations this year in Washington, D.C., September 3rd and 4th at National Community Church. Listen, you don't want to miss it. Register today at CourageousCombos.org. Now, this is a hybrid conference. We have 250 in-person tickets available, and they are on the way to selling out. Um, So the next option would be the virtual pass. All of that is available at CourageousCombos.org. I'm so excited about it. We have amazing panelists. We have Dr. Christina Edmondson, Dr. Howard John Wesley, Dr. Esau McCauley, Dr. Eric Mason, Dr. Lisa Bowens, Dr. Otis Moss, Dr. Marvin McMickle, Dr. Vince Bantu, Dr. Jacqueline Rivers, Dr. Cheryl Sanders. It's going to be amazing. I would not miss it, whether in person or virtually. So get your tickets today at CourageousConvos.org. Without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. What's up, everyone? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. And today I won't be hosting, but we have an amazing lecture by Dr. Vince Bantu on engaging and understanding cometicism. It's going to be a blessing. This lecture was first given at our Through Eyes of Color virtual experience. And remember that if you plan on registering for Courageous Conversations this year and you want to be in person, we're only having 250 seats and they're almost gone. However, if you don't get to get the in-person tickets, you can do a virtual pass. We won't be live streaming, so you have to get the virtual pass. And you can do register for both at CourageousConvos.org. Get them while supplies last. Um, And without further ado, here is Dr. Vince Bantu on Cometicism. God bless. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Dr. Vince Bantu, and I will be talking to you today about the topic of Cometicism. And uh, specifically, in the spirit of Jude 3, how we can uh, engage with the comedic community uh, from the position of the Word of God uh, in, in order to give an answer for the faith that we have. And so when we talk about the comedic movement, uh, what we're talking about is a particular religious group that is primarily active in the black community uh, in the U.S., but other, other nations as well, um, that that uh, goes back to the ancient religious life of Egypt. Uh, Now, Egypt is the English name that we are familiar with of the land, but uh, this community uh, actually uses the original Egyptian name, which is Kemet. So the name Kemet actually is 
is the original name for the land and the nation of Egypt in the Pharaonic times and actually in the period uh, of early Christianity when many Egyptians had actually became Christian, uh, they, uh, the name actually in Coptic was, in, in, it was Kemi. So like Kemi and Coptic and Kemet in ancient Egyptian uh, is kind of the different phases of the language. And uh, Coptic is the language that was spoken when many of the Kemetic or Egyptian people became Christians. Um, and uh, that's even uh, an apologetic in and of itself, but we'll get to that. But anyway, when we're talking about Kemetism, again, we're talking about a movement that uh, is, is trying to go back to and bring back and uh, kind of patronize the deities and religious uh, life of, of ancient Egypt or, or Kemet. Uh, another name you might be familiar with hearing uh, is the conscious community, uh, which is uh, also sometimes alternatively called the Kemetic or conscious community. And again, what, uh, what I want to do in this video is to, uh, in this lecture, is to present just a brief overview of some of their core beliefs and then also uh, some biblical and historical resources that will hopefully aid the body of Christ in representing the faith of Jesus Christ, uh, especially with, uh, with regard to the Kemetic community. Now, <clears throat> the Kemetic community actually uh, in the United States started actually in the white community, which, uh, which is also an apologetic of, in and of itself. In the early 20th century, there were many white people in the United States who were trying to go back, to, similar kind of way, go back to pray to Egyptian gods, even claim to be the reincarnation of those gods, because in ancient Egyptian religion, uh, you know, gods can uh, or goddesses can manifest as human beings and they kind of go in and out of, of different modes or modalities or uh, of existence. And so, um, but this movement, it wasn't really to the 70s when this movement got started in the black community. Um, and there was a, uh, an Afro-Panamanian man named Ra Unefra Amin. And he was born in Panama in 1944. He came to New York City in 1960. And then in 1973, he began the Ausar Auset Society. Now, Ausar uh, and Auset are kind of like Kemet, these are the traditional Egyptian language terms for the Egyptian gods, Osiris and Isis. You might be more familiar with those terms. Those come from the Greek language. Um, and, you know, Egypt was colonized by the Greeks, uh, you know, even be from before the time of Christianity in the Ptolemaic dynasty. And so the Greek kind of Hellenized names of Egyptian gods are more probably well known, but one of the one of the biggest kind of values of this particular community is to actually use Egyptian terms and to reject Greek or English or Western terms because uh, like many other religious communities in the black community, Hebrew Israelites or black Muslims, Nation of Islam, whatever, five percenters, there's a huge emphasis on cultural identity and a desire to distance oneself from Western uh, white terminology and to embrace African terminology, which is actually in many ways a, a good thing. Uh, and actually it's, it's a... Um, a wake-up call really to the church that we need to also be uh, clearly presenting the gospel in ways that are much more culturally uh, relatable and accessible to black people. Um, and, uh, and so there's actually a, a, some common ground we can talk about there, I think. But, um, but uh, this particular comedic community in the white community uh, was, you know, was very racist and actually Ra Nafra Ahmed experienced a lot of marginalization. And so he left that community and started the uh, Osiris Oset Society, the Osiris Isis Society in 1973. And um, it was kind of a multicultural fusion of different things. Um, and it was open to many people, but it's predominantly black people, uh, it, you know, Afro-Caribbeans, African-Americans, Africans in the U.S. mainly, but also other, uh, other countries as well. And it's predominantly a, a black movement where the, the idea is for black people to go back to and reclaim their Egyptian identity. And uh, Ra Nefer Amin actually was very educated in uh, Taoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so he also fused a lot of those religions uh, in his writings. And I would definitely encourage you to read a lot of his writings that are available to really understand this community's theology. 
Um, but, um, but, you know, there's a strong fusion of different gods and goddesses and uh, participants uh, in, this, in, in the various denominations that have emerged since 1973 that all uh, alternatively wear the comedic or conscious label or espouse similar theology, um, all have this kind of pantheon of gods, largely focusing on Egypt, although others are included as well. And, and, there, and there's a sense in which, you know, again, black people are descendants from Egypt, and that's the original religion of black people, and we have to go back to that. And, um, and there's also a, a, another positive thing. There's, they have a very strong emphasis on, like, healthy eating, healthy diet. Um, and, uh, but when it comes to uh, the comedic community and, and talking about Christianity, I would say that there's really two major um, claims that are often made that, that believers that we have to be prepared to really engage with. And, um, and so uh, when we're representing the Bisrat, now Bisrat is a Ethiopian term that means gospel. And again, uh, it's an apologetic even in and of itself that I'm sharing and introducing various African Christian terms uh, because we know that, you know, in, uh, in Christ Jesus, that all of our languages and cultures are embraced. And so uh, it's, it's fine to use Western terms, but it's also, uh, I think, good and needed to use African terms as well. And so when it comes to representing the Bisrot um, in, in engaging the comedic community, I would say there's two major claims. One is that the Bisrot, uh, the gospel, is a, is, a, is a message and Christianity is a religion that was started by the white man, that it's a white man's religion, um, that at its core, Christianity is a, an oppressive Western white religion. And uh, the second major claim is that Christianity is a copy of comedic religion and comedic mythology. Um, and, and, and so the idea is that uh, Christianity, especially, you know, the story around Jesus and Mary, uh, but even like, you know, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, that all of these things were just copies from Egypt because Moses and the Israelites were in Egypt. And, uh, and so and the Hebrews came out of Egypt. So everything's a copy from Egypt. That's the, one of the main claims. Now, already, that's, those are actually kind of contradictory claims that they will usually make because, again, if comedic religion and mythology is African and it's from Egypt and it's black, and if Christianity was copying off of it, then that would make Christianity black too because it's copying off of a black religion. If, if the idea is that white people came and copied off of and created, uh, according to them, created a story about Jesus copying off of African religion, then that would make it uh, actually have its source in African religion. So it's, a, it's, a, it's honestly a, um, a poor argument and contradictory arguments to be made, but they are still false claims that, are, that, are, uh, that the enemy is using to circulate in our community um, and, uh, and, that, and with which we have to do spiritual warfare. And so, um, so there's, a, there's a few points that I want to make uh, in, this, in this video, in this video lecture, um, that, that hopefully will be helpful in engaging these concepts um, and some central points here. Number one, the Bisrot, properly preached and practiced, is a, the gospel, is a message that, that embraces all cultures and does not favor any one of them over the other. Right, but all people are embraced in the in the bisrot, in the gospel. Uh, number two, the bisrot, the gospel, and Kemetic or Egyptian mythology, they actually have little in common with each other. And so there's this idea that, oh, you know, Christianity is just copying off of Egypt. But they actually have very little in common with each other. Number three, uh, the Kemetic Urpa, and, and Urpa is actually an Egyptian word that means the church, and is actually interesting because that was that's an Egyptian word. So it's you know it's good to share teach these people about Egyptian history. I'm trying to share with you so you can teach them about their own 
uh, alleged history. Um, but erpa is actually an Egyptian word that literally means like ur, it means to do or to activate or perform, and pe means heaven. And these were, uh, so it literally means to do or practice heaven. And it's a, it's a beautiful concept, actually, and a beautiful word for church, because church is just a Germanic word, right, kirka. And so, you know, you can use church, but also, uh, you know, you can use erpa as well, because um, we shouldn't all be beholden to, um, you know, uh, we shouldn't all be, you know, kind of uh, emphasizing the eye all the time, because the eye can't say to the, the hand, I don't need you. And so we all need, all, every part of the body needs to be influenced and, and embraced to represent the same Bisrat message. And so anyway, uh, I also think it's interesting that the Urpa, the word Urpa, was actually a, a, the word for the temple in Egypt, like the temples of Isis or Her Horus, Heru. Um, these were called the Urpa. And so when, when Kemetic or Egyptian people became Christians, they actually uh, sometimes would even call the church the Urpa. And so they're using this term uh, that, just like the word church, has a pre-Christian uh, pagan background, but then when Europeans became Christian, they started calling the church. Uh, you know, the um, that's what that's what they would use to refer to the ecclesia, uh, is the church. And so, in a similar way, in Egypt in Kemet, the believers called it the Urpa, and even would sometimes literally transform ancient temples that were used to worship Isis and Horus, and they would change them into churches. And we see the most famous example right there uh, in this picture, the Temple of Philae, where a cross was superimposed on top of traditional religious uh, iconography. And again, just another apologetic tip is like, uh, uh, look, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the only way. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Um, but I do think that we as believers, when we're doing apologetics and evangelism, we also need to show respect. And so uh, I think it's important to, when we're referring to different communities, like, for example, the Kemetic community, they very much are offended when we use English terms or Greek terms like Egypt or ISIS. So, you know, I try to say Kemet to be respectful. Uh, and in the same way, you know, I, even though I do believe that these religious claims are, are falsehoods uh, from the enemy and uh, that keep one separated from God through Christ, uh, it's, I don't think it's really necessary and it's disrespectful to call it like a cult or use words like pagan. Uh, that's just not respectful. And so I, I say th th this was traditional religious belief system uh, that, was, that was covered up by Egyptians, by Kemetic people themselves who, when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but at the same time, they found ways to contextualize um, and that's part of the last point I want to make is that it was actually during the Christian period of Kemet or Egypt uh, when, the, when most, most Kemetic people were in the Urpa, the church, that they actually resisted white colonial rule more than the Kemetic traditionalists did. Again, I don't want to say pagan, but I'm going to say the Kemetic traditionalists, the people who prayed to Isis and Horus and all that. They actually did a better job. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain these points uh, and offer some resources uh, right now. Now, first point, again, the Bisrat embraces all cultures and favors none, right? This is something that, honestly, we need to do better as a church uh, to really teach better because we have to understand that a large part of why people see Christianity as a white man's religion is because it's often been presented that way. How many pictures of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus have we all seen? And so we know that that's not historically accurate, and it's theologically heretical, I would say, and it's psychologically traumatizing to always have a blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. But that is unfortunately normal for many of us to see. And so people, that's just one example. We go down the list. But there are so many ways in which the church has been presented in a very Eurocentric way. And so it's, it's understandable, though it's false. It's a false thing. It's understandable why people think that. But when we go to the Shaja, the word of God, right? That's an Egyptian word, actually, for uh, that, that Egyptian Christians used, uh, Kemetic Christians used. Uh, when we look at the Shaja, the Bible, it shows us that, that um, 
the bisrot, the gospel is for all people, that God's message of salvation through Jesus Christ is for all people, right? In the Old Testament, God told Abraham that all people will be blessed to you. Uh, Isaiah told Israel that it's too light a thing for you to be my people and said, I will make you a light to the nation so that my salvation will reach to the ends of the earth, right? So there's always been, even in the Old Testament, a vision of God creating a covenant people of Israel to bring his message of salvation to the entire world so that everyone would be incorporated. And we see that come to fruition in the New Testament in Acts 10 with Cornelius, who is the first non-Hebrew Gentile believer. And, and Peter realizes, oh, God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts everybody. See, Peter thought salvation was only going to be for the Hebrew people. And, and, and God had to give him a celestial vision and said, kill and eat. And he said, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And then in Acts 15, the question becomes, well, do Gentiles who are saved, do they have to be like Jewish people? Like, do they have to get circumcised and do all the temple stuff that we do? And the Holy Spirit led the council into realizing, no, they don't have to be, they don't have to act like Jews. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're Greeks. They're Egyptians. They're Persians. They're Indians. Like, the gospel is going in every direction. Acts 2, it says, every tribe, nation, and tongue was filled with the Holy Spirit. And they went out from there, and they shared the bisrot, the gospel, in every, God in his providence chose the Hebrew people who were dispersed in almost every nation in the world, from India to Spain. Spain, to Ethiopia, to Scythia, like they were everywhere. And they went and shared the Bisrat with their non-Hebrew, non-Jewish uh, kinfolk. And so the gospel went out from everywhere from the beginning. And Acts 15 shows us that, no, you don't all have to act like Hebrews, but you stay in your own culture. Um, and so, again, in Revelation 7-9, we see that cultural linguistic distinction is something that's going to follow us into eternity. John looked up in heaven and saw every nation, tribe, and tongue. He, up, he, saw, he heard people saying uh, Shaja and, and Urpa and, and, and Bisra. He, he heard Egyptian. He heard Ethiopian. He heard Yoruba. He heard Akan. He heard Patois. He heard African-American vernacular and Ebonics. He heard Spanish, Chinese, Korean. Every single culture is all united in worship of the risen Lamb, Jesus Christ. And so Christianity is not have any one culture and it's unique in that way because most cultures are usually associated with one culture like Judaism is associated with Hebrew Jewish people Israelis uh, Hinduism is associated with Indian people Shinto is associated with Japanese people Islam is associated with Arabic speaking Middle Eastern people but Christianity is not associated with any one culture so it's not any man's it's not a white man's religion and it's not any person's religion it's for all people and when we come to God by faith in Jesus Christ we still stay who we are. We still stay Chinese, black, uh, white, French, uh, Jamaican, Mexican, whatever. We still stay who we are because those things are all made in the image of God. And so that is the bisrot truly practiced. So that, and so it embraces all cultures and it's not, it doesn't belong to any one person. The second point, um, let's, let, we have to be able to respond to this claim that, you know, oh, everything y'all read in your Bible is just a copy from Egyptian religion. Well, let's look at that, right? Because a lot of times people in this community, they'll be basing their faith and theology off of a YouTube video they watched or off of some uh, blog that has no kind of like actual research and, and actual engagement with primary text. But when we look at the primary text, and I've just named a few right here, like the hymn to Osiris, uh, the contingents of Horus and Seth. Uh, the Metternich Stela. These are some of the pivotal Egyptian ancient pharaonic texts that talk about uh, Horus and Isis, because that's usually the point where they go when they say everything you're believing in is all a copy from Egypt. Well, let's look at that. When we look at these texts, we read the stories and we actually see, and I'm just kind of summarizing, but again, you can go read these texts for yourself, and because again, most Kemetic people don't even really read them, honestly. And that's, I mean, you know, that, which is part of the problem. They have these beliefs, they don't even read their own, their own, you know, holy texts. But when you read them, you see that actually, Osar, or Osiris, he actually committed adultery with Seb's wife, and that's why he was killed. 
So Seb was his brother and killed him. So first of all, they believe in a God that can be killed uh, and, and, uh, and also who commits adultery. <laughs> we believe in a God who's perfect, who's not like a human, that he should sin, and, uh, and also is eternal, was, is, and is to come. Big difference already off the bat. Uh, Alset, his wife, then, you know, reassembled his body that Seb had cut up, um, but she wasn't able to locate his penis, and so she hovered over his body, and then the text says that she drew his semen into herself. That is nothing like the Immaculate Conception of Mary, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And, there's, uh, and, she, and also, Mary's not a god, whereas Aset is thought to be a god by Egyptian people. So again, nothing, nothing like, um, you know, but they will say, uh, you know, Aset was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, just like Mary was. But again, that's, that's not at all what happened, as we see. Asar, after he was killed, went to become the lord of the underworld. Uh, and so we don't believe in a God, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is not, uh, is not the, the uh, kind of doesn't go live in hell and, and reign in hell. That's actually where the devil is punished. And so big difference there. Um, Heru or Horus was born in a swamp. Sometimes you read, you know, websites that are unsubstantiated saying things like, oh, you know, Horus was born in a manger just like Jesus was. No, he wasn't. He was born in a swamp. And uh, they will say that Horus was crucified just like Jesus was. No, he wasn't. He, was, for, he didn't die at all. And he was certainly not crucified, nailed to a cross. But his uncle Seb attempted to assassinate him by sending a scorpion to bite him and poison him. But he didn't die because Alset prayed for him, prayed to Ra, Amun-Ra, who's the great God, which, by the way, that's a difference too because, you know, you're saying Haru is God and, and Alset and Alsar are God, but they have a God that they report to who is God over them and can like, you know, either take away or, or give them their power. But Jesus has all authority. Jesus is God. Before Abraham was, I am. Christians don't believe that Jesus is like a lesser God uh, than, than God the Father. And so that's another major difference right there. But also there's, the stories were not at all the same thing. And then also Ra then declared that Seb and Heru had to compete in a, in a fight together to rule Egypt. And Alset deceived Seb, and then Heru was able to rule Egypt. And that even is a difference in and of itself, is that the end goal in Egyptian religion is all about who rules Egypt. And Heru's main goal was to become the ruler of Egypt and overthrow Seb. But again, that's totally different because... Jesus' main goal in coming to earth, taking on flesh, dying on the cross, and rising again was to make humanity, not just Egypt, but was to, and also not to be a political ruler of one nation, but his goal was to make humanity, all of humanity, right again with God through faith in Jesus Christ and by atoning and by taking on and bearing the sin of humanity. That's not at all what uh, Horace's goal was. So again, even just from a quick glance, but go read those texts, some of those, some of those primary texts and many other ancient Egyptian texts, and you'll see that there's very little in common. In fact, they have more in common, uh, ancient Egyptian mythologies have more in common with like Babylonian and Sumerian religion than they do with Christianity. And that's why Christians were being persecuted left and right, because unlike most religions who were polytheistic and had no problem syncretizing and fusing other gods together, Christians were saying, no, we worship nobody but Jesus. So even just the strict monotheism of Christianity in and of itself is a very vast distinction in the ancient religious context and makes it very distinct from Egypt and far from a copy. Um, the last point I want to make is that not only uh, was Christianity not a copy of Egyptian religion, Kemetic religion, but actually when Kemetic people 
became believers, they actually resisted white supremacy and white colonial rule even better than the traditionalists did. And I'm saying traditionalists instead of pagan, because again, I want to be respectful. But the traditionalists, and what I mean by that, are comedic people who worship and believe in Alsar, Offset, Heru, and all that. The traditionalists, when they became conquered by the Ptolemies, uh, you know, in the uh, fourth century BC, they began to just fuse Greek gods with their own. In fact, there's nothing more, uh, there's a picture of it right there with Serapis, the Greek god, there's nothing more like kind of like vividly narrates or depicts the uh, the punkin that was going on. Like the Roman Empire straight came in and deboed Egypt and said, you belong to us now because we want your grain supply. You know, Europeans been colonizing Africa for the resources since day one and still are. Came in, colonized them. But they said, you can still pray to your little, you know, Egyptian gods like Isis. But we're going to put Serapis. We're going to remove Osiris, who is her husband. And we're going to put our Greek god. So literally they're male God comes in and, and, and moves away the male God of Egypt and takes the wife of Egypt. That is a, a symbol for how the Greeks came in and colonized Egypt and the Egyptians just went right along with it. They prayed to Serapis and they prayed to Isis and, they, and that's why they weren't persecuted. Think about it. Romans did not persecute e Egyptians until they became Christian. Just think about that in and of itself. Egyptians were worshiping Egyptian gods and Greek and Roman gods because Romans weren't, you know, Romans didn't have a problem if you pray, if you believe in other gods, you just have to pray to our gods too. You have to pray to Hercules and Serapis and, 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 and you know, all these other Roman gods, but you can pray to yours too. So that's what Egyptians did. That's what, you know, uh, uh, Syrians and, and, you know, North Africans and Carthage, like all the people that Rome conquered, they would, you know, they would allow them to fuse their gods together as long as they worship the Roman gods too. Christians were unique in the fact that they say, no, we don't worship anybody except Jesus. We're not worshiping any of these gods. And here's the other thing. Going forward, when the Roman Empire tried to call itself a Christian empire and, you know, go throughout making Rome great again and trying to take Christianity and make it its own thing, mechanism of oppression. Here's the other thing that they don't talk about, though, that, yes, Constantine and other Roman emperors did that. But here's the other thing is that soon after, at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, there was a schism between the Roman church and the churches of Egypt and other and Syria and Arabia, basically the churches of Africa and the Middle East and Asia. They, they became split. And it was over an issue of Christology. The Roman church in Chalcedon said Jesus is, the way we talk about his humanity and divinity is that he's one person with two natures. Now, that made sense in their Hellenistic mindset. But in Egypt in particular, who was one of the main people that resisted this, that didn't make sense. They were, that, to them, that sounded like they, the council was saying that there's two different Jesuses. So they said, no, Jesus has one nature, but his nature is fully God and fully human. And so you will still see Western Christians, even Protestants, rejecting the ancient church of Egypt, saying it's not really Christian. And they haven't even read their own Coptic texts. But here's an example right here. Look at... Look at this excerpt from the life of Daniel. This was written in the Egyptian language. And Daniel was an Egyptian monk who resisted the Roman Empire. The Roman church, who was the dominant church, had the Roman Empire and soldiers backing them up. And the Egyptian church was persecuted. So this was Christian, so-called Christian, on Christian violence that was going on for 200 years. It says here, and at the time the impious Justinian became emperor, he who was polluted and terrorized the entire world and the Catholic church in every place. He endeavored to enforce the accursed faith of the defiled council of Chalcedon everywhere and scattered the beautiful flocks of Christ. He chased the Orthodox bishops and archbishops from their thrones, and the impious Justinian was not satisfied with this. But he also disseminated the impious tome of Leo. Leo was the Roman pope that the, you, have, you have the, you know, kind of the Western church and the Western government working together. And he wrote a tome or a letter saying Jesus is one person in two natures, and the Egyptians weren't down with that. It says, which the tome of Leo, which the impious council of Chalcedon had accepted. He propagated it everywhere that lay under his control in order to make everyone subscribe to it. But when it was brought to Egypt, notice the way that Egypt is being 
you know, contrasted in this text with the oppressive Roman Empire and their oppressive theology that they were trying to impose on the Egyptian church. It says, when it was brought to Egypt, a great disturbance occurred among all the Orthodox faithful. Notice how they're calling Egyptians Orthodox faithful, and they're calling the Romans the impious, polluted people. Uh, the, the, a great disturbance occurred among all the Orthodox faithful who were in the land of Egypt, and it was brought to the holy mountain of Scatus in order that our holy fathers might subscribe to it. Now, the text goes on and shows that Daniel comes out and he tears up the tome and he says, we don't want your theology, right? Because they had their own Egyptian theology. So, again, what, why am I pointing this out? I'm saying that if you look at Egyptian church history, you will see that they became ostracized and oppressed by the Roman church, Christian on Christian oppression and violence. And when the Roman Empire was attempting to colonize, theologically colonize and make the Egyptian church subscribe to their particular theology, that really didn't make sense and didn't seem orthodox or retet, to use an Ethiopian term, to the Egyptian church or the Kemetic Urpa, they resisted it. Now, what did, the, what did the traditionalists do when the Romans came in and told them, you better pray to Serapis? They went ahead and did it. They let themselves get punked. They let themselves get deboed. But when the Egyptians were believers in Christ Jesus, notice that not only they had already had a long history of rejecting Egyptian paganism, but they also said, we're not going to accept your particular theology because we already have our own. They kept it real, not only for the Bisrot, the gospel, but they even kept it real for their Egyptian identity and said, we don't need to get this European church. We have our own beautiful church tradition. There's a, already an African vibrant church tradition, and we don't need to be imposed upon by your European church tradition. And we're still dealing with that today. But that is, that is a contradistinction between the same Egyptian people, when they had faith in Christ, that it took them deeper in their ethnic identity. And it took them deeper in a pride of their own Egyptian theology, that they don't need to be imposed upon from a European one. And that's another way that we have to communicate the Bisrat more holistically, that again, being a Nasrawi or a Christian, as the Ethiopian word, does not take you away from your cultural identity. It actually completes it. That's what Paul says. He says a Jew is not only one who is one outwardly. So that's another way of him saying that I'm actually a true Jew, Paul is saying, because I'm completed in Christ. So being a Christian doesn't make you less black or less African. It actually makes you more black and more African because God is the one who created black. And it's the same thing for everybody because it's not just for black folks. Chinese, Korean, you know, Nigerian, French, whatever. When we come into faith in Christ, we become completed because he made us in his diversity. And so these are just some uh, resources that I hope are helpful as you represent the Bisrat or the gospel with our comedic uh, fellow image bearers and neighbors in our community. Thank you and God bless. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. 
God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. <laughs>